First case this morning is Schaefer versus Single Care Holdings LLC, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, Joseph Yelt of Cornbluth Ginsburg Law Group for the appellant, David Schaefer. Uh, I would like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. Ford Motor Company versus Montana 8th Judicial District Court clarified that causation is not required when determining whether or not claims arise out of or are related to a defendant's contacts with the forum state. When a company like Single Care chooses to employ individuals in North Carolina under the test emphasized by the Supreme Court in Ford, North Carolina may properly exercise personal jurisdiction over claims related to those employment relationships. The trial court, following this common sense line of thought, agreed and denied defendant's motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. They found, found that North Carolina courts ought to hear this case. The Court of Appeals reversed and in the process failed to apply the holding of Ford and ignored key determinative facts. The trial court's ruling must be restored for a few key reasons that I'd like to cover today. First, Regardless of the ruling in this case, in this issue before the court today, this case will proceed in North Carolina, at least part of it. Defendants concede that they are subject to jurisdiction uh, in North Carolina based on Mr. Schaefer's uh, wrongful discharge claim, that's count 10 in the complaint. Second, the North Carolina wage and hour claim as a clear jurisdictional hook in North Carolina. It is an allegation that Mr. Schaefer was not paid wages owed to him that should have been paid in North Carolina. Third, Mr. Schaefer's activities on single care's behalf in North Carolina are not properly categorized as unilateral activities. And finally, single care's activities in North Carolina to grow and expand its business through sales professionals like Mr. Schaefer mean that it can be held to count in North Carolina courts based on uh, claims that arise out of those related employment relationships. So let me ask you about um, my reading of the briefs. It seems to me that the defendants are saying that uh, the precedent from the U.S. Supreme Court uh, requires us to look at the claims that are in the complaint and that since most of the hiring-related claims uh, rose uh, in places other than North Carolina, that those claims are better uh, addressed uh, in other jurisdictions. Um, I'll give, obviously, the defendants an opportunity to tell me if I've mischaracterized or misunderstood their view. Uh, but assuming, well, 
you tell me, one, if that's your reading as well, and two, how would you respond to that? First, Your Honor, I, I wouldn't say that they are recruiting-related claims. Each of those claims were, the elements were completed in North Carolina when the appellant was terminated and he was not given the benefit of his bargain that was stricken at the beginning of his employment relationship. Second, um, Mr. Schaefer worked in North Carolina for a number of months in furtherance of the business relationship uh, that single care had both nationally with customers and in North Carolina. That is as integral to the reason why all of the claims at issue here need to be heard in North Carolina because for, for two reasons really. The first is the award agreement is intended, the award agreement that, that gave Mr. Schaefer his fully vested shares is intended to increase the productivity of the employee who's the recipient of those shares. It's a carrot that's dangled in front of him uh, that, that can pay out either in the form of distributions or if the company is sold, uh, full distribution of the, of the uh, incentive units. Let, let me just uh, ask, uh, apparently I wasn't clear, how much do the claims as pled in the complaint, how much does that restrict our review of personal jurisdiction or should we look more broadly? If I understand the question correctly, and, and please let me know if I'm, I'm, I'm not, you're referring to issues that, or, or the facts that are pled in the complaint that occur in, North, in, in California, rather than the facts that occur in North Carolina. The, the, the way, and again, maybe I'm misunderstanding, and the defendants will have an opportunity to you know, clarify but it seems that their argument is that we need to look at the precise nature of the claims and if the essence of the claims have to do with the uh, beginning of the employment relationship, uh, that then we look at that point in time to see what North Carolina uh, contacts uh, or uh, North Carolina events may have may be relevant to a consideration of North Carolina exercising jurisdiction. Well, the the claims that are at issue, you're you're I think specifically referring to the fraudulent inducement claim. So let's look at that. That that is uh, requires representations that are made to Mr. Schaefer that essentially end up not being true, and he relies on those and he's harmed. Mr. Schaefer is not harmed until he is in North Carolina, until he is terminated, and until they say, actually, we are going to revoke those shares. We are going to take those away from you and you will not be paid the benefit of your bargain. The well, what, what's the law, though? What's the context? I'm trying to figure out, does the law tell us, uh, look, at the precise nature of the claims, or does the law tell us to look more broadly at these other interactions that the company may have had? Well, I think if you look at, at Ford, none of the vehicles that are subject to the actions in Ford, uh, the, the 
the vehicle uh, malfunctions in Montana, it causes injury, and they sue in Montana, that vehicle is not in Montana because of any act that Ford directly took. It was sold by a third party, purchased, and taken to Montana. In this, in this case, there's two ways that you can apply Ford that make sense um, and, and, and demonstrate that jurisdiction is proper in North Carolina over all of these claims, including the fraudulent inducement, the uh, constructive fraud claims. Um, first, single care is subject to jurisdiction in North Carolina because just as in Ford, they're employing sales professionals in North Carolina. They are incentivizing their performance in North Carolina in similar ways to how they incentivize Mr. Schaefer's performance. Analogize that to Ford. Ford sells the same model of car in Montana as it does in the, the state that it initially sold the vehicle in question. So because the claims here are related to the types of contacts that the defendants have with North Carolina, jurisdiction is, is, is constitutionally permissible in North Carolina based on all of the claims because they are all tied back to the central sort of nexus of fact, which is Mr. Schaefer's employment and his termination, more importantly, his termination from employment and the decision to take back the shares, which occurred in North Carolina. Um, following up on that, how would you analogize, analogize this uh, theory about what uh, you look to, um, to the facts in Muha versus Wagner? Because in that case, we've, we applied Ford Motor Company, um, and, and we found that the only reason that, we could, that, ex, that jurisdiction could not be exercised was because um, the defendant didn't have knowledge that the, um, that the plaintiff was in North Carolina. But the relationship between the two of them um, started outside the state. Um, and in fact, the, the plaintiff didn't come to North Carolina until the day she filed the domestic violence um, action. So, so how should we apply that precedent to this situation? Well, Your Honor, I think it, it, it reaches directly to why jurisdiction ought, is, is proper here, because Ms. The, the appellant asked his employer if he could move to North Carolina. He, he did not one day decide, I want to live in North Carolina. I'm going to move there um, and, and carry out his duties in North Carolina without the knowledge or consent of his employer. He asked, and what happened after he asked? First, they said, yes, that will be fine. Second, they wrote a letter for the purpose of him providing that letter to his mortgage lender in Durham so that he could purchase his house in Chapel Hill, so that his mortgage lender knew he would have employment in North Carolina through single care. Next, 
after he moved, the defendants paid taxes in North Carolina based off of Mr. Schaefer's work in North Carolina. They directed his activities for a period of three months, which is a, a vital uh, part of the analysis as um, identified in a number of, of cases, including King v. Perdea, um, Williams v. Preeminent Protective Services, um, and, and moreover, I think it reaches to the point that's made in Alexis v. Rogers, which is addresses this exact argument that Schaefer's the presence in North Carolina, the connection to North Carolina is, is merely grown out of unilateral acts from the appellant. That is not correct. Alexis v. Rogers gives the example of uh, if, if a plaintiff in, an, in a similar employment action was terminated and then moved to North Carolina and tried to sue in North Carolina, that would certainly be an example of a unilateral action where the connection to the forum state exists solely because of the plaintiff's actions. That's not what we have here. We have an individual who asked his employer if he, if he could move. His employer said, yes, that will be just fine. They had other sales individuals working in North Carolina. They were working to expand their footprint in North Carolina, um, as is evidenced by pages 128 and 129 of the record. Uh, and, and, and then Mr. Schaefer moved to North Carolina. He uh, worked to expand his employer's business both nationally and in North Carolina. So with the plaintiff voluntarily coming here and his uh, presence in North Carolina being tolerated uh, by his employer in uh, accepting the plaintiff's desire to reside in North Carolina, why would we then impute to the defendants uh, the minimum contacts that would be required for jurisdiction if the defendants themselves did not invite this contact uh, to take place on its own volition? Well, Your Honor, I, I don't think that there's a single case that says that the, uh, the defendant has to be the one that, that gets that ball rolling, that gets somebody to the forum state. So I think respectfully couching it as tolerating his move, I'm not sure is an accurate statement because I don't believe that it's supported in the record. Uh, I don't think there's anywhere in the record that says that they didn't want him to move to North Carolina or that they were reluctant for him for him to be in North Carolina. I know the term facilitated has been used in terms of the defendants facilitating uh, the plaintiff's desire to be in North Carolina. And I don't use tolerate in the sense that somehow it was uh, not desirable, but tolerated from the standpoint that it was initiated by the plaintiff and the uh, defendants acquiesced uh, to the presence. Uh, why would this impute to the defendants some uh, expected contact to be minimally uh, requiring them, therefore, to have the kind of context that would subject the defendants to personal jurisdiction? It, it's because he worked in North Carolina, because, because he's 
for a period of three months, his activities in North Carolina are being directed by his employers. And I think it's important here to consider the difference between an employment relationship and other types of, of relationships governed by contract, be it a, a sale of goods or, or uh, a, a trademark agreement. I think you could um, point to one of the cases that the defendants cite to, which is the Purdue case, um, which is essentially an agreement between Purdue and the uh, other party in that case, uh, BNF, to stay out of the jurisdiction. Are you asking um, us to expand Ford, or would it just be a direct application of Ford uh, in this case? This would merely be a direct application of Ford, and a, a, it would follow myriad precedents that we've provided in our in our brief, citing to this very proposition that when an employee exists in the forum state, when their activities are being directed in that state, regardless of whether or not, in fact, regardless of whether or not those activities are targeted at the the market in that state or employees in that uh, or, or uh, end users in that, that state. It's, it is the relationship between employer and employee that creates that two-way street of obligations. The defendant is enjoying the fruits of the individual's labor in the state, and in return they have to uh, adhere to the obligations that that they have because of uh, the employment in North Carolina. And um, I mean, th this is this is something that goes all the way back 75 years to International Shoe, where you had salespeople in the state of Washington, and the employer did not want to pay unemployment taxes in Washington based on that employment. The Supreme Court said, no, you, you have, by having these individuals operating in the state of Washington, you need to um, uh, adhere to that two-way street. Um, this, this concept of reciprocity is, is, is addressed in one of the cases that the appellee cites to, DMACC v. Republic Steel. Um, and, that, and that says that at the heart of the specific jurisdiction inquiry is this idea of reciprocity between the defendant and the forum. When a company enjoys the privileges of conducting activities, like employing individuals in the state, for example, thus enjoying the benefits and protections of the state, they in turn have to be on the hook when there's alleged misconduct as a result of that relationship in North Carolina. Uh, and, Counselor, if I may ask a question, and uh, again, if uh, I'm mischaracterizing the, uh, the briefs on the other side, uh, I'm sure I'll be uh, corrected. But uh, you mentioned serving markets, or mentioned markets. <coughs> And the way I read the brief, um, and certainly in the context of Ford, I, I, I believe I'm uh, uh, close to quoting, or at least paraphrasing, the Ford case, that um, there's a focus on systematically serving markets in a particular state. Uh, my understanding of the, uh, uh, the defendant's 
uh, position is that there that that's not the case here that uh, they were not systematically serving markets in North Carolina um, could you explain your position and how that works with what you've you've been discussing thus far yes your honor my, my first question would be where is the support in the record for that contention um, when this case first went on for hearing the appellant provided an affidavit and he provided evidence demonstrating that single care is focusing on North Carolina uh, to expand its, its business. They have job postings in Wilmington, Raleigh, Durham, Greenville, Charlotte, uh, seeking sales professionals to uh, expand the business in North Carolina. They set up a website where you can put in your zip code and what, what uh, medication you are hoping to get a discount on, and Single Care's website will direct you to the nearest pharmacy. That, we provided a printout of that where we put in a Durham zip code, and it directs you to Harris Teeter, CVS, Walgreens, to the contrary, there, there is every indication that North Carolina is a target of single care's business. So that engagement with our state's citizens and market, does, does that apply to the individual defendants here as well? And what would be your theory there? Well, the engagement uh, is twofold. There's the sort of mass marketing efforts to get folks to get the single care card and get uh, reduced pharmacy um, pharmaceutical prices. And then the other part of it is that they are employing sales professionals like Mr. Schaefer in North Carolina to expand the business. Now, Mr. Schaefer's focus was not only on North Carolina, but it was nationally. That is one distinction between the, um, the individual salespeople and Mr. Schaefer, and that's partially out of the mere virtue that Mr. Schaefer was a senior vice president of business development for the company. Um, so it's, it's a piece of the overall directive that was assigned to Mr. Schaefer, excuse me, which was to grow and expand the business. And part of that effort was in North Carolina. Now, I, believe, I, be, I believe, Counsel, that uh, Justice Dietz was asking about uh, the individual defendants. Help us understand um, the relationship between the individual defendants in North Carolina. Yes, Your Honor. So let's take them one at a time. So Mr. Mrs. Uh, Schoenebeck was Mr. Schaefer's direct supervisor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, she is the individual who is having day-to-day -day contact with Mr. Schaefer. She directed his activities in the state for the months while he was working in North Carolina. She was the individual who uh, wrote the letter <clears throat> allowing him to move to North Carolina. Um, so and, and, and if you look to the SALT case, which I believe we cited in front of the Court of Appeals, <clears throat> I don't think it's included in the briefing here, 
but it looks to that same type of is are the individuals involved in the actions that give rise to these claims and <clears throat> salt says essentially yes um, it, it, it I would caution against sort of taking a pierce the veil type of approach in response to that question because it's it's much it's it's different than that it's just what were the activities that they underwent in the state um, now the other individual richard bates is the ceo of the corporate entities um, and the complaint alleges that all of the x at issue here were engaged at his direction now the defendants had an opportunity to rebut those allegations as they pertain to jurisdictional um, the jurisdictional inquiry. Um, <clears throat> they submitted an affidavit, but it didn't contain anything that tends to rebut that proposition. And I see I'm close to my rebuttal time, um, unless if there is one additional question, we'll yield the rest of my time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellate. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Charles Lewin, and along with uh, Julia Ambrose and Mark Eisen at council table, um, I represent each of the five defendants in this case. Um, single care holdings, single care services, RxSense holdings, and then the two individual defendants, um, Rick Bates and Darcy Schoenbeck. Um, I think that there are two really important points that I'd like to make, virtually all of which were touched on by Your Honor's questions. And I think the first one really broadly stated is that this is not the case that the, the plaintiffs make it out to be. Um, the, the plaintiff sort of has broadly talked in conceptual terms, but Chief Justice Newby's questions about the claims, I think, are really important because when you look at the claims at issue, um, those claims under completely settled jurisdictional principles, including and maybe even particularly for, show that there's not jurisdiction in this case. And, and the primary reason for that is the key fact is that, that the plaintiff is trying to avoid is that the events relating to plaintiff's claims took place before plaintiff moved to North Carolina. Well, can I just ask you about that? Because if there had been no termination and there had been no um, pulling back of the vested um, ownership shares, it, it, then I don't see how claims one through nine could have been brought. Well, I think, Your Honor, that, that a, a couple of points. Um, I think from a legal standpoint, Muha versus Wagner, which you brought up, citing Walden versus Fiori, specifically notes that where the defendant, the, I'm sorry, where the plaintiff happens to be at the time of the injury is not a jurisdictionally relevant issue. It has to be um, affirmative contact by the defendant with the forum. Well, so, with, with all due respect, I believe what we said in Muha was that 
that the due process question was whether or not the defendant had any notice that he could be brought into court in North Carolina, and that the, the key fact in that case was that he, at the time he engaged in the behavior that led to the um, liability or ability to be brought into court on a domestic violence action, he didn't know where the plaintiff was. If he had known where she was, then he would have had notice, and then, he could have, then she could have maintained her domestic violence protection action in North Carolina. Yes, Your Honor, and I think that that is bound. Sorry. Well, but in, and just to tie the loop there, in this case, it's abundantly clear that the defendants knew that the plaintiff was in North Carolina. Yes, Your Honor. I think that really the answer to that question involves the nature of the claim. And again, Ford talks about the affiliation between the defendant and the claim and the forum. The domestic violence um, issue that was at issue in Muha, it's that specific act of, of th the threatening phone call that is the wrongful act by the defendant. Here, the wrongful acts by the defendant are all alleged to have occurred almost all more than a year before um, Mr. Schaefer moved to North Carolina, before anyone knew that North Carolina had anything to do with this dispute. And, and I guess that's what I'm having trouble with, because when I look at the allegations of the complaint, what he's complaining about is his termination and the failure to live up to his understanding of what the agreement was, and that happened after he moved. Well, Your Honor, I, I would um, respectfully suggest that there's a, a much different set of allegations in the complaint in which the plaintiff alleges not only that the defendants had engaged in this wrongful act before he moved to North Carolina at the time of the negotiation of his contract, but that he knew it. So, for example, the best example may be the, um, the North Carolina unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. Um, so in count 91 of the complaint, this is, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, paragraph 91 of the complaint, um, the plaintiff alleges that the defendants intentionally misled Mr. Schaefer regarding the nature of the equity award he would be entitled to after six months in order to induce <coughs> Mr. Schaefer to accept an offer of employment. So this wrongful conduct, by their own allegation, occurred no later than May of 2017, well over a year before he moved to North Carolina. In addition, in at least three separate places, the plaintiff specifically alleges that he was aware of this alleged wrongful conduct a year before he moved to North Carolina. The very first page of the complaint, the plaintiff alleges that upon receiving the grant, so we're talking about the award agreement given to him in November of 2017, Mr. Schaefer learned for the first time that the equity did not fully vest as defendants had repeatedly promised, but rather could be taken away without any form of compensation and at the whim of the company. So he not only alleges repeatedly in the complaint that this, these wrongful acts took place when he was a resident of the state of California and no one was in North Carolina, so he alleges that all of these activities took place then, but he also alleges specifically he knew about them. He, he specifically says in paragraph 27, he got the award agreement, 
he looked at it, and he was surprised to see that it was completely different than what he had been promised. So he knew about the claim at that time. There's even one step beyond that, that the award agreement contains a comprehensive integration clause, and this is in the record. Um, it was part of our Rule 12 motion that says there are no representations that have been made to me other than what's contained in this agreement. So we would submit not only did he, not only does he claim that these uh, wrongful acts occurred before he came to North Carolina, long before he came to North Carolina, he alleges he knew about them, and we would contend that he compromised them before he came to North Carolina. He expressly says the award agreement that I am entering into sets forth the four corners of our agreement, and there are no representations outside of this that that I have. So. Uh, you don't have to accept that as true, but I do think it's a jurisdictionally relevant fact that before he came to North Carolina, not only did he know about these claims, but, but there was a contract that, that we would contend compromise them. But, but you do, I guess what I'm struggling with is what do you make of the fact that he wouldn't have a claim if he hadn't been fired and the company hadn't decided to not allow him to keep the vested shares? I, I think that, that a couple of things, that that is, not, that is the kind of random and fortuitous contact with a, with a jurisdiction that numerous Supreme Court cases say aren't affirmative acts of the defendant in the forum that give rise to personal jurisdiction. So if he had moved to New Orleans, then he would have a claim in Louisiana. I, I don't think that any of the law that the plaintiff has cited focuses on this importation or domestication of foreign claims into North Carolina. Right, but that, so also help me understand how you're conceding that, that there's jurisdiction for the 10th claim, um, and and yet, it, it, you know, if we were to find that some, some perhaps not all, but some of the other claims actually occurred when the termination happened, um, why? What's the possible distinction between the tenth claim and another claim that is dependent? The claim does not exist, does not become a claim until he's terminated. So. Respectfully, I would contend that Mr. Schaefer could have brought these claims when he was proffered the award agreement. The fraud that he alleges, the deceptive practices that he alleges, the fraudulent inducement, all had, and really if you look at every one of those claims, one through nine, they all focus on the alleged promise to give him this equity that was false when made. So that's the first thing that I would say. I think technically he did have these claims before he came to North Carolina. Um, it, and I also think that, um, that there is a, a different nucleus of operative facts. Again, what Ford says is the most important thing is this triangle between the defendant, the claims, and the forum. Um, not the plaintiff and the forum, but the defendant and the forum. And so in order to perform that analysis, you have to do it on a claim-by-claim -claim basis. And when you look at those specific claims, the, the wrongful termination claim does specifically relate to the termination. It says at the time he was terminated, it was done for this improper reason. 
all of the other claims expressly say that in fact the wrongful act that defendants did, defendants' wrongful activity took place at the time of recruiting, contracting, or, or um, it is the time of his employment. So if we were to find contrary to that, that some of the other claims actually did arise based on conduct of the company after he had moved to North Carolina, then, then it would be more like uh, claim number 10 and there would be jurisdiction. Well, I, I, I think that even if the claims arose in North Carolina, it's still an attenuated contact. So the, the cases like Wright versus Zaki, more traditional contract cases, Burger King versus Rudzowitz, where you have a plaintiff who is sitting in North Carolina for the entire period of time and a defendant who is sitting in wherever it is, um, let's call it California. Um, that analysis, there are numerous contract cases that say that, that even though the, the um, defendant knew the plaintiff was in North Carolina, even though the defendant knew that the plaintiff was performing some of the services in North Carolina, that doesn't itself establish jurisdiction. So I think that even if we accept for this, the, our discussion that certain of the claims arose, I think that's just the first step in the process. Then you get into a very traditional analysis under the long line, this case's, this court's Bean case, Toshiba Global case, um, cases like Wright versus Zaki and uh, Field versus Sickle Cell Disease, where they, they found there wasn't jurisdiction between two parties, one of whom was um, in the forum and one of whom wasn't. Well, let's then look a little more closely at the connections between the defendant and the forum, because I'm curious what you would say about the significance we can draw from the fact that um, single care and um, Rx Sense are both registered to do business in North Carolina with the North Carolina Secretary of State. Doesn't that have some relevance to whether or not they're doing business here and can be sued here? I, I think that it, it certainly is a, um, a, a contact that can be considered. However, um, I think it is the, the loose and spurious form of general jurisdiction that Crystal Myers Squibb says can't be um, a basis for jurisdiction. The, the non-Mr. Schaefer-related activities have nothing to do with these claims. The fact that they were, were and this is what Ford says, this is the case that they used to, to, to condemn the very well-reasoned appellate court decision. They said the appellate court doesn't understand Ford, and that's why this case um, should should have come up. What Ford says is you have to look at, at um, exactly the the claim related contacts. The stuff about that there are pharmacies in North Carolina that accept the single care card or that single care is registered to do business in the state of North Carolina, we would submit have nothing to do with the claims at issue here. And so I think with respect to all of those contacts that they allege, which there's a lot of argument. It's a, it's a short record, which is a good thing for all of us. And I think when you look at the two-page affidavit that was submitted by Mr. Schaefer, they have, um, have uh, 
expanded and made arguments, I, I think, that are beyond what's fairly in the four corners of that affidavit. But, but even subject to that, I think that all of the general North Carolina contacts are uh, <coughs> not appropriate under Ford and oh, an incredible Bristol-Myers and all of the cases that they rely on because they don't relate to the claims. And the specific issues relating to Mr. Schaefer, I think we've talked about, and under precedents like Walden versus Fiore, um, I don't think that those contacts are, are jurisdictionally relevant because, again, they either um, aren't supported by the record or they, they didn't relate to the corporate defendants um, affirmatively acting in connection with the forum. They just had to do with touching Mr. Schaefer. And so if he were working in an, in an RV where, he, where we, he said, I'm going to sell my house, I'm going to get in an RV, and is it okay if I perform my services from an RV that, that I, I'm going around the country? The idea that because we knew about that and we said, okay, sure, as long as you can perform <coughs> your, your job from there, go right ahead, and we knew he was doing it and we let him do his job, the idea that, that the question of whether he had crossed the border between um, you know, Montana and Idaho, when he got the call saying you were terminated, would determine where he was subject to jurisdiction, doesn't seem like a, like a, a rule that um, makes sense to apply. And it doesn't seem like it protects the defendant's liberty rights, which is the, the key issue that we're talking about. Right, but the central question on whether or not it satisfies due process to sue this defendant in the state has to do with whether the, the defendant has purposefully availed himself of this forum. And when I look at our precedents, when I look at MUHA, when I look at BEAM, when I look at Toshiba, um, I, I see um, entities that have had far less involvement in North Carolina and not a parsing of um, the exact precise things that happened at exactly certain points in time that ultimately led to a claim. We're, we just look at did, did the defendant ha purposely avail himself of the, the benefits of the state of North Carolina such that it's fair that he would be on fair notice that he can be sued here. And this is not a case of someone driving around in an RV. This is a company that's registered to do business here, solicits salespeople here. Um, you know, they, they, um, knew he was working here, they reimbursed him for office expenses here, they were operating in this state. And in those circumstances, how does it offend due process to say that they should be subject to the laws of the state? Well, Your Honor, I respectfully, I would submit that um, Supreme Court precedent, as well as this court's precedent, um, says purposeful availment is the first step of a multi-part test. The next step which is do the claims relate to defendants' contact with the forum. Um, I think that Toshiba Global recognizes that, uh, Beam versus Grax recognize that, and many United States Supreme Court cases recognize that. So I think the, the due process, and Ford recognized that, right? Ford said it's only because of the incredibly close affiliation between the defendant's specific contact and the claims at issue. The cars that they had marketed extensively in this jurisdiction malfunctioned here and caused grievous injuries here. Um, that accident took place within the jurisdiction. 
And that's where the claim comes from. That's what the claim relates to. And um, that, that uh, because there was such identity between what the defendant for did in the jurisdiction and how those claims came up, that, that the um, related to um, uh, prong would be satisfied. I mean, that's what plaintiffs say this case is about, but that it's, it's not just arise from, it's relate to. And the a Court of Appeals, in its unanimous opinion, could not have been more clear that that was the precise test that it was applying. The Court of Appeals said these claims don't um, arise from conduct in the jurisdiction. They arise from conduct that took place before Mr. Schaefer moved here. And they don't uh, counsel, even relate to. Uh, to follow up a bit uh, on Justice Earl's uh, astute questions, um, I asked the, um, your friends on the other side about the systematic uh, serving markets in North Carolina, which uh, I'm pulling that language directly from, paraphrasing it, from Ford. Uh, and you've used terms, uh, I believe, loose and spurious and random acts. So um, can you give us your position? I, I did read it in the brief, but if you could um, you have a chance now to talk about that. I think it may be in the context of those comments and your discussion with, with Justice Earls. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, the, the question that um, Ford talks about being asked is, does the defendant have notice that their primary conduct could give rise to these claims? So this is another way of focusing on the claim-related aspect of it, that it's not, um, you know, Daimler makes clear single care and um, and. Rx sense are subject to jurisdiction in two places, the place where they're incorporated and the place where their principal place of business is. Neither of those are in North Carolina. So that's the general jurisdiction that arises from their holding themselves out in the marketplace as um, someone who wants to do business with the state of North Carolina. Um, the the uh, Ford makes clear that in order to have that proper due process protection, there has to be that relationship um, between the claims and the defendant's conduct that results in the defendant having made a decision with respect to its primary conduct. That's what we don't have here because all of these things had occurred before Mr. Schaefer moved here. And even with respect to plaintiff's contention that uh, there was, a, a, I think, a, a great exchange about was it facilitated, was it um, the, the term that, um, that uh, opposing counsel had used. But, you know, if you even look at the record with respect to what they rely on for that, the letter that Ms. Schoenbeck sent, I think it is entirely consistent with the, the argument that we're making here. What the letter actually says is, um, to whom it may concern, this letter is to verify that David Schaefer has the ability to work away from our headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, um, as he is employed as a senior vice president of business development and travels for this job. So again, it doesn't say Mr. or Ms. Durham mortgage lender 
please know that we have engaged Mr. Um, Schaefer to work in North Carolina, and, and we're good with that. I think that, that even this specific letter shows that what we were saying was he works remotely, he can perform those tasks for, for, from anywhere, and it doesn't represent the kind of um, reaching into the jurisdiction that, uh, that creates jurisdiction separately, even if this were a case like Wright versus Zaki or, um, or Fields, where you have a, a two parties in different states negotiating a contract or negotiating an employment relationship. So, I asked your friend about the individual defendants, and if I understand the answer. I think um, if you are a high-ranking executive, so someone that has to sign off on essentially every corporate action, then an allegation in the complaint that you are an executive with that responsibility means every corporate act is imputed to you and there will be personal jurisdiction over you if there is over the companies. Do you agree with that? And if not, why is that wrong? So I, I'm glad you asked, Your Honor. We, we absolutely disagree with it. And we, we think that while there are arguments that are made in the briefs and the record with respect to the basis for jurisdiction over um, the, the corporate entities, the, the, the briefs are essentially silent with respect to what the specific justification is for Ms. Schoenbeck, who lives in Minnesota, and, and um, Mr. Bates, who lives in Massachusetts, being subject to jurisdiction in North Carolina. And so um, th there is no, we don't believe that there's any justification for claiming that because an executive knows of or approves of an act of the corporation, they're automatically subject to jurisdiction in every place that the corporation is. Um, that would turn the, the jurisprudence relating to personal jurisdiction on its head. It, it, the, um, Robbins versus Ingham, um, a 2006 Court of Appeals case, talks about uh, specifically refusing to impute um, it, it says, we have stated that personal jurisdiction over an individual officer or employee of a corporation may not be predicated merely upon the corporate context of the forum. So we believe it's, it's absolutely established that um, as a legal matter, that's incorrect. And as, an, as a factual matter, um, the record is entirely without support for the idea that these two individuals um, would be subject to jurisdiction. In well, you, you've spoken of where... Uh, jurisdiction is not, namely North Carolina, where would the defendants contend that jurisdiction over counts one through nine would be? Um, well, it, it certainly exists in uh, the place where, um, where it certainly exists in Massachusetts where, um, where all of these corporate defendants are found. Um, You've mentioned California uh, at least a couple of times. Uh, would California be an appropriate form in the defendant's view? I would say, Your Honor, that from a personal jurisdiction standpoint, the, the points that we've made relating to the personal jurisdiction analysis, certainly the, the um, defendants, the corporate defendants, were engaged at the time these wrongful acts allegedly occurred with a California resident. And so the arguments that, that we've made and that we believe are determinative with respect to this matter 
um, I don't believe would apply with respect to a personal jurisdictional analysis um, relating to a, a claim that, that plaintiff were to bring in California. I believe Massachusetts and Minnesota also are states that have been invoked in terms of at least some relationship between and among defendants, plaintiff, uh, the corporate structure. Would either of those two or both of them uh, have jurisdiction as well, Delaware, Minnesota? Um, it's it's a subject that I can't say that I have have separately analyzed. So forgive me for for doing this on the fly. But you know, I, I do think that maybe the best way I can answer it is there are numerous jurisdictions in the United States that plaintiff has not made an argument that his claims could not be heard um, in in um, jurisdictions that. We wouldn't be able to make the personal jurisdiction arguments that we've made here. And my reason for asking about the multiple states is that the Court of Appeals, in ruling in the defendant's favor, uh, has looked at quantity, quality, and nature of the claims in terms of talking about where jurisdiction would lie. And it sounds as though, because I, I made reference in my notes, that you feel as though the claims arose prior to plaintiff's arrival in North Carolina and that this would go to the nature of the claims therein the defendants having the position that North Carolina would not have jurisdiction but in looking at all of those in unison quantity quality and nature if other states have jurisdiction why would not then North Carolina have jurisdiction applying the same continuum of not only the nature, but also the quantity and the quality of the contacts in light especially of these numerous contacts that the defendants must have in terms of uh, tax liability, uh, the payments made to the plaintiff while he lives here, reimbursement of his traveling office expenses, and so forth. Hopefully I'm answering your, answering your question, but I, th I think it's that the threshold issue is is the due process consideration that's set forth in the, the long line of cases that we've cited satisfied. And so while the analysis might be different depending on the other state that you look at, there isn't um, the relationship between the claim, the forum, and the defendant in North Carolina that would allow a case to proceed. So I, I'm not, I don't believe that there is case law that says that uh, even if we find that there isn't that connection, which Ford said is really the touchstone of this jurisdictional analysis, there's a different weighing that can take place that would allow the claims to proceed in North Carolina. Council, did, did your, um did the individual clients concede personal jurisdiction as to count 10? I don't believe that we did, Your Honor. Um, we did not direct our Rule 12 motion at count 10. Um, and so I think that there, we specifically said in the Rule 12 motion, there is no personal jurisdiction with respect to at least nine of the 10 counts. I believe that personal jurisdiction can be raised by way of affirmative defense. Um, in response to a complaint. There's been no answer to this complaint. I think there, are, there could be factual questions about whether personal jurisdiction exists 
with respect to count 10, but I do not believe that there is anything in the record that amounts to a legal concession or waiver with respect to count 10. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, if there are no other questions, we would submit that the, the um, Court of Appeals got this case uh, right in a well-reasoned decision, and for all the reasons that um, that we've talked about, um, this Court should affirm that decision. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Counsel. <coughs> Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, I'd like to clarify a number of points. First, uh, the contention that Mr. Schaefer could have performed his tasks from anywhere, I believe, is a particularly uh, concerning contention to make given the nature of the modern workforce right now. Uh, excuse me. Um, I'd like to explore that, and I know you have a very brief time. Uh, the modern workforce, um, it appears, and unfortunately he's not in a position to be able to answer this, but it appears he, your, your friends on the other side are arguing a more traditional, they talked about home office and place of incorporation, but the world is different now, uh, the business world, and um, uh, at least my reading of this company uh, in the record, it appears that they have a very uh, um, uh, disparate workforce throughout the country. What is your position on that? Your Honor, it, it's it's an issue that was raised, I believe, in Justice Gorsuch's cons, uh, concurrence in Ford, that this test, that so, the, the way that some courts are applying the analysis of whether or not claims arise out of or relate to contacts with the forum state, when you require too tight of a causal connection, as the Court of Appeals did here, you may end up with with results that uh, aren't exactly comporting with the requirements of, of the due process clause. Now, when you consider the fact that, according to the amicus brief submitted by the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, between February of 2021 and February of 2022, 65,000 people moved to North Carolina for remote work. Now, the, the result that... Uh, opposing counsel seems to suggest is that those folks ought to have to litigate uh, where their employers are headquartered. Uh, th that is, I, I don't think, supported by the, uh, the controlling precedent, and it's certainly not supported by other uh, results that uh, other jurisdictions have come to when they analyze, uh, analyze this exact type of uh, work relationship. Wallens v. Millman um, deals with an in, uh, a situation where the only contact were virtual ones between an employee and their supervisor. And the court there found that those are significant contacts directed toward the forum state for the purpose of plaintiff performing work for the benefit of the defendants. Uh, and counselor, do you see a difference in someone who just uh, on their own volition picks up and decides to work from somewhere uh, and what you're explaining about the contacts with, with your client to the state of North Carolina. I, th I think it reaches back to the point that Justice Earls was bringing up about um, the Wagner case, which is that the knowledge of the other party is, is integral to the analysis. Uh, here, single care, the defendants are aware that they're directing their activities to North Carolina, to the forum state. 
Um, now, if, if I might address a couple other points, because well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Council, but I, I know you want to, to get there, but I, why, why is um, an individual's decision to work from home um, a substantial activity within the state under our long-arm statute by the defendant? First, the long-arm statute would extend to the full uh, fullest extent permitted by the, the due process clause. Well, uh, but, and, and you and your friend on the other side argue uh, in your briefs that they collapse, but they're actually two steps uh, in some circumstances. How, how is the decision to work from home a substantial activity by the defendant? Well, the substantial activity, if I'm uh, recalling the long-arm statute correctly, here would be the, the harm directed at Mr. Schaefer in the foreign state, because there is a specific portion of the long-arm statute that covers harms directed towards individuals in the foreign state. Uh, now, speaking of individuals, um, the idea that the two individuals in this case are hands-off executives who are merely signing off on uh, what's occurring in this case is, is not correct. It's specific actions that they're directing involving Mr. Schaefer, they're aware of uh, at each step of the way what they're doing. That's, that's alleged in the complaint. And when the defendants had an opportunity to rebut those contentions, they failed to do so. Thank you, counsel. Thank, Thank you, you everyone. everyone.